Welcome to the Gifted Life Podcast, where we have conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation. Remember, you can always find us at thegiftedlife.org. I'm Lori Steele, guys. I'm Adam Keaton, in for Joey Boudreau. In for Joey Boudreau. Okay, thanks. And I'm Sarah Blakemore. Yes, here on the Gifted Life today, lots to talk about. What's up, guys? Today, we're going to be talking about the Decision Project. What is it? and how it's saving lives. And misusing psychiatric terminology. All right, obviously lots to get to. You guys ready? Oh, yeah. Let's All right, do it. our friends are joining us next. Here on the Gifted Life podcast, we are talking about the decision project. So Adam, Sarah, we've been trying to figure out what is it? It sounds so amazing. Making life happen. You know, we love it. So we went straight to the source. So Aisha Johnson is joining us. She is the community outreach manager for the Living Legacy Foundation. Hey, ma'am. Hey, how are you guys? Good. We also have another friend to introduce you guys to a recipient volunteer. Her name is Sonia Taylor. Hey, Miss Sonia. Hello. Hi. So we appreciate you guys joining us. Aisha, I'm going to start with you. Uh, We know that you presented at a couple of conferences, created a buzz about the Decision Project. So what is it in in a gist and then weave in how Sonia became involved? Well, thanks for having us here. We're very excited to be a part of the podcast. We know it's been an awesome um, podcast that um, Louisiana Oregon Procurement Agency has been doing for a couple of years. Thanks, girl. So about the decision. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Um, The decision project was started back in 2016, and it started off an idea where myself, a family services manager, we just sat down and thought, how can we start a different way to do outreach in our area? And we had no name. Decision Project wasn't even thought of at that time. And we just thought about looking at the data because the data can never steer you wrong. And we found out by pulling our donor designation rates by zip code in the state of Maryland, um, we found that we had one particular area called Park Heights, which we referred to as 21215. They had the lowest donor designation rates. And then we were just talking about in conversation with our hospital services manager, she said, well, we just pulled data from UNOS on um, the wait list by zip code. And we found out that that same zip code had the highest amount of people in the state of Maryland waiting for an organ transplant, but the lowest amount signing themselves up to be an organ donor. So that's how this started. Um, so Sonia was brought in as one of our amazing volunteers for over 10 years, along with the small task force. And we just sat down and said, what can we do? And we literally just started brainstorming, thinking of ways to go back to the grassroots way of doing um, education. So that's how the decision project was born. It took about 18 months to have an official name, um, but that's in the just a nutshell. So we're basically empowering our residents to register, educating them, them about the importance of being an organ eye and tissue donor, and then inspiring them to share their message with their loved ones. I love hearing how projects get off the ground. I love it. It's just an idea. I, I invite this friend in, this coworker, and then bam, the decision project is born. So, Sonia, we know that you're an amazing volunteer. We've heard all about you, recipient. Um, you have another tie to donation. Um, talk to us about that and why you thought I need to help on this decision project. 
Okay, so back in 1994, I had the, um, I had a cornea transplant. So leading up to a cornea transplant is my, my vision had declined and I was always one who could actually see very well and I couldn't understand why my why my vision was declining so rapidly so went to have several um, prognosis and the doctor came up with told me that I had an eye disorder which was called cornea taconis so I couldn't even think about how to spell cornea taconis, <laughs> let alone try to understand what cornea taconis was. So after I had all of these different prognoses and the doctor was telling me that there really wasn't anything that they could do for me besides me having a cornea transplant. So fast forward into 1994, um, I had a cornea transplant. So I went around with my cornea transplant just as happy-go-lucky as I possibly could be. My vision began to improve over the years. So I was happy that I was able to see. So fast forward and God says to me, okay, well, you happy, go lucky, you running around, but you're not spreading the word about the importance of organ, eye, and tissue donation. So there was a decision that needed to be made. And my nephew back in 2007 was actually killed on the streets of Baltimore. Oh, no. Okay. So he was murdered on the streets. <gasps> However, what I didn't know was that he made the decision at 16, that he wanted to be an organ donor. So we didn't find that out until he was 21 in 2007. He became an organ donor. And after that, I said to myself, well, how are you going to keep his legacy alive? So the vision that I thought I saw after my cornea transplant in 1994 really didn't happen until 2007 when I realized that at 16, he was smart enough to make the decision that he wanted to give somebody else a second chance. So when he gave someone else a second chance, I had to say, wow, wait a minute. Now you got to talk about this. So I had to talk about how important it was for him at 16 to make a decision to say that he was going to be an organ donor. So every day now, I talk about the importance of organ, eye, and tissue donation, knowing that I did not get to see the vision until 2007. So that's how I get involved. So I speak on that all the time. And whenever I run across somebody that's in that 21315 area code, I talk about the low um, designated recipient and donors that we have in that area. And then I talk about how important it is in that area where there's a lot of people who actually need to have or waiting for a life transplant organ. Yeah. She's one of your most powerful weapons, I'd assume, Aisha. Uh, great, great storyteller, passionate. I love it. So let's talk about the Decision Project. Uh, obviously, you talked about a zip code 21215. So what did you guys start doing? I know you said grassroots. Um, so uh, I'm assuming baby steps right out the gate. So tell us uh, some of uh, what you've been doing, what you learned from it, and where you are now. Perfect. So what we did when we started that task force, we actually met with um, Sinai Hospital Baltimore which is a second level trauma center in um, Park Heights in 21215. And we met with their population health department because we really didn't know where to begin. And they met with us, they thought this was a great idea. So they just literally, remember Sonia, they gave us a list of organizations to yes. contact 
Um, so what we did, we split up and everybody got on the phone and started doing cold calls just to get in the room. Um, we did that for about a year. And while we were doing small sponsorships in the community, such as giving backpacks away to young kids, um, working on the corners, giving away food through different organizations, we realized this may not be the right thing to do. So we decided to do a focus group and that started last year. You know, and as a manager, I got to find ways to, you know, make it happen. And when I got a couple of quotes, the amount just blew me away. I can't believe people are, are offering $75,000 to do focus groups. Um, when we realized that couldn't happen, I actually have a friend and her name is Macy Henderson. She works at um, the Johns Hopkins Hospital in research. And she told me she can do it um, through her students at a minimal, minimal cost through a grant. And when that was approved, they hosted six um, focus groups in all for us. And the biggest takeaways through those focus groups were, number one, a lot of people in that community felt that they're always being asked to do something. Like no one's coming in, um, seeing what they need as a community. Um, and I'm gonna give you a few stats about that area. About 50% of the residents are raised by single parents. This particular area of Baltimore City has over 2,000 vacant buildings that dominate the land space, um, landscape. So you can just imagine either burnt down buildings next to someone's house that is you know, nice, the next door um, boarded up. Um, one third of the residents have a high school education. Half of the residents are unemployed um, and they live 7,000 lower beyond the uh, median in a regional sense. Um, so that area is very poor. They do live in a food desert, meaning they have to either get on the bus and drive a few miles for the nearest grocery store. Um, so you can see right then and there, their first priority is not donation. Um, the second priority is not their health. And that's something else we learned in our focus groups that that's not something they talk about. And what was eye opening for me, one woman was in the room, her son was being worked up to, um, for the hospital for a kidney transplant. Another woman said her cousin was waiting for a liver, but no one talks about it. It's just like, yeah, my cousin needs this and no one's having a conversation. And then that, you know, spoke to my heart. Well, what can we do to help do preventive health? And that's when we um, got council support through the seven district. And his name is Councilman Leon Pinkett. And he is actually the councilman for 21215, 16 and 1-7, which all are low donor designation rates. And he took it upon himself to have us host a block party in that area where we do a lot of preventive health, where we have blood pressure screenings, diabetes screenings, um, food giveaways, a garden that is actually in Park Heights that we sponsor so people can get fresh produce. And the one thing that we do not do, we do not talk about registering on the, on the registry. We're just educating them about the importance of donation and having that discussion with their family. Because what for me, when something happens to that loved one and Living Legacy is coming on site to give the opportunity to give life, they're not thinking about all of that. They're thinking about who is taking care of me in my time of need. And with all the mistrust that is going on with the healthcare system, particularly with the Johns Hopkins Hospital that kept coming up over and over again. If we think we can help dispel this mistrust, that maybe they can go ahead and start trusting other healthcare 
institution. Man, I like that. A different approach. I like that you're you're using the the data and the stats, and then you bring in someone like Sonia, um, who shares and has walked the walk, um, and who's talked the talk with a lot of these folks, and maybe getting them to start sharing their story. So, Sonia, have you taken part in some of these um, events, and what's your thought process about the Decision Project? Um, so, actually, the one of the things that we started after my nephew passed away was a foundation where we actually do different events in the community to kind of talk about the importance of organ and tissue donation, especially for younger um, African-Americans, um, because we realized that one of the things is that there's such a myth about organ and tissue donation that happens, especially in the African-American community, that we're trying to dispel so that people understand that we need to be more involved in saving lives and, and making sure that we make the right decision. So I enjoyed the decision project project because we get to do various different things um, to get out into the community so that we are able to one, increase the knowledge and the awareness of organ and tissue donation and to dispel so many myths about when you are in a tragedy that you, your life won't be saved because you think that because you're organ donor, they check your license and say, oh, we're not going to save you. So we need to get that out and, and let them understand that you want to keep living on and on and on and on. And so every time that Jordan has saved seven lives, I say that those people have gotten a second chance and they get to live on. So why not pay it forward? So all you're doing is paying it forward so that people understand that lives and folks will keep living on and your 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 family member have just I'm, I'm, you, you can't even imagine, especially for me, because since 1994, if that family hadn't said yes to organ eye and tissue donation, then my vision wouldn't be what the way it is right now. I would still not be able to see like I can see today. So I try to make sure that people understand that piece. I love it. So I, I, I enjoy the decision project. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, the, the myths that you guys brought up were miles apart. But um, these same myths are, are things that we're battling here, too. Um, and education is key. So we love the new approach that you guys are going with. Yeah. Hi, uh, Aisha. I had a, a question for Aisha, actually. Um, being that you said the this project was, you know, data driven and that you guys looked at specific data in specific areas, uh, but you're not directly addressing uh, registrations in these community events. How, how do you guys go about measuring uh, success of the program itself? That's a, a very good question. When we started, we thought it was going to be data. Like, oh, this is easy data. Let's look at the numbers every year and see where we're going from there. But when we got into that community, it was much more than that. So how we're measuring it right now, and we do have registrations at some events, but we're just not focused on that. Right now, we're me measuring on our meaningful conversations and these relationships we're building um, inside that community. And when we did the second set of focus group, that's when we actually saw their fruition when they were mentioning living legacy and trusting us more than they were trusting their hospitals. And that made, and I was like, okay, like they heard of us, you know, and, and eventually, and we're going to, I'm going to be honest here, the data isn't um, ready for us right now. We're, and 
um, Kirsten can tell you, it's a lot of data scrubbing to go on with these registries and the DMVs pushing in numbers. And until that gets cleaned up, I'm really not going to see a true sense of donor designation rate, but we have seen an increase at Sinai Hospital of designated donors come in in the last year alone. So, um, so you right are now, seeing an increase. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. you can look at the um, just uh, as anecdotal evidence, like you said, just um, the conversations that you have with people day to day when you're in the community and you can kind of, I think, maybe see a, a, a change in, in the tide, you know, the way they speak about uh, organ and tissue and eye donation when you have those conversations and they're out in the open. So. No, this started back in um, 2016, 2019. Now, um, you, you kind of sound lot like us. We're going to go out, we're going to try, we're going to learn from it, and we're going to adjust on the way. So maybe top three lessons, Aisha, uh, that you've learned um, doing this, things that um, you think work, that others maybe could try, um, that you've learned from, from this process. Yeah, the first thing I learned is um, maybe for us to think about who we're partnering with. Well, you know, our transplant center, it's one of the best transplant centers in the world, but also it has a bad reputation from back in the day, you know, with the whole Henrietta Lacks story that, you know, our residents haven't forgotten at all. So that came up a lot. And we didn't think about that when their researchers were talking to the community, you know, so that hit us in the face a little hard, but that didn't stop me from working with the hospital because we all need to work together to help build that trust this transportation can happen without that hospital and it can't happen without the OPO either. So that was a lesson that we learned. And the second lesson that we learned from that is that we just need to listen. Um, we need to let them voice their, you know, their concern. I know last summer when we did our second block party in um, the area, one of, you know, activists in the neighborhood was upset that the councilman didn't let him know that this was happening. And, you know, and I'm like, well, maybe we could have went to a meeting um, in the community to say that we're planning this block party. Do you want to be a part of it rather just than throwing the block party in their area? Um, so in 2020, we'll work on that. And also, too, what um, is important that social media and the younger crowd, um, that came up a lot. So, you know, my PR team, Allison Coleman, she has all these great ideas on what we can do in that area to highlight transplant recipients and donor families. So she's, you know, threw out an idea on beautification, like maybe let's put up a mural because um, they said that they, you know, would love to see their city look pretty, you know, and and then also too, one of my goals is having a safe zone for that area where we were told their teenagers are already planning their funerals because their mindset, they're not going to get they're going to get shot and killed or murdered. Um, so creating a safe space where, you know, they can come and play and have fun. And that's on a blue sky of mine. But um, what I'm happy about our C CEO, Charlie Alexander, he is now making the decision project an organizational goal. And that's important for us, and my team, because we've been in the, you know, boots on the ground for the last three years. And now that our senior leadership team is actually taking this serious not saying they never had, but they're realizing it's a need when Charlie look at the data. Most of our donors are coming from a seven mile radius in that area. So it's something that is important and we gotta, you know, look at it in a in a way to help those people because at the end of the day, we are gonna be asking them 
and their families to be donors. This toolkit sounds so resourceful because, you know, we even say here there's two steps to registering, registering and then telling your family about it. Sonia, did your family know how to have these conversations? Well, see, this was the issue. No one knew that he was a donor um, until that tragedy happened. Um, his mother wasn't even aware. So she really had to, she really struggled with the fact that he had designated himself to be a um, organ donor. But at the time, she was, you know, her, her youngest son had just got killed. So she was struggling with the fact that now I have to make the decision to agree with what he said he wanted to do when he got his license at 16, because now he's 21. And she has, she struggled with that at the time of his death to make that decision to actually honor his wishes. It was hard for her at that moment. And, and the reason it was hard for her at that moment is because he never said anything to anyone. He didn't even mention it to anyone. And the problem that we had at that time was because he was so young and now she had to say, oh, which organs do I have to donate for him? Because now he said he wanted to be an organ donor. Now, which ones do I actually assign and say he can have? How do we do that? So because I was a recipient, I was able to help her get through that process, which was hard at the time. Not only was I able to help her, there was the staff at Live and Legacy Foundation that was extremely helpful during that time to help walk her through that process. So it's important that when you say, yes, you want to be an organ donor, that you share that with your family members. I wanted to ask about, uh, since we were talking about the conversation, and I think this is uh, certainly not a local problem. This is a universal problem with donation and end-of-life decisions in general. Um, Aisha, do you have any a couple of quick tips maybe you could give our listeners about how do they initiate that conversation? Because it, it seems that there's never a good time to talk about death and you know our, what, what our wishes would be, and people are obviously uncomfortable talking about that. So are there a couple of quick things that maybe you could say uh, scenarios or something in which somebody could initiate that conversation with their loved ones? Absolutely. And we all know sitting and um, having this conversation that every everyone's conversation is going to be different um, and unique to them. And just like what Sonia said, that they didn't know. So, again, emotions were running high at the hospital, very stressed. So ways that you can bring this up if you're having a difficult time with um, end of life conversations. Um, there are a lot of movies out there that deal with death tragic accident. So probably after watching a movie, you know, turn to your loved one, sister, daughter, husband, friend, and just talk talk about, well, if this was to happen to me, here are my wishes. Do I want to be an organ donor? Do I not want to be an organ donor? Do I want to stay on the ventilator? Do I oh, you can think of all kinds of scenarios in the hospital. I'm at a family gathering. Um, actually I live in legacy. We do a community outreach simulation every year and one is centered around how to have conversations about end of life and what you do and organ donation around the dinner table. So we and we reenact that entire scenario out. Another thing you can do is if you see something on the news, you can have a conversation about death in itself. And we actually offer community grief resources for um, the public uh, living legacy. So to give you tips and different ways to talk about um, donation. And then you can visit our website 
um, www.thedecisionproject.org and look at how to discuss your end of life wishes with loved ones. And it gives you a lot of tips, a lot of scenarios on how to have those difficult conversations. Yeah, I Amazing. looked at the website and it, um, it is a really great resource for those uh, for those decisions and conversations. So, Ladies, it's been an honor, a pleasure. Thank you for all that you do. The Decision Project, guys. Check it out. On the Gifted Life podcast, we're taking a moment for mental health. Sarah, what are we going to talk about today? Okay, so today, guys, what we're going to talk about is misusing psychiatric terminology. So that sounds a little crazy. Yes. So really what it is, is psychiatric terminology that's misused today the most would be things like bipolar, depression, traumatized, or my favorite, triggered. Triggered. (laughs) Oh, we all say those. Yes. And look, we all do it. And I am definitely, I have done this before where I'll joke about things that, quote, trigger me that aren't. So really what the conversation today is going to be about is how overusing these psychiatric terms and overusing these clinical psychological terms can actually devalue and create an unequal experience between people who actually have gone through clinical depression or have experienced a severe trauma and have PTSD from that. Going back to triggered, can we can can you explain what that actually is? Because I hear that word thrown all around a lot with our young people, everything. Right. Oh, I, I was feeling so triggered. Um, so it's kind of a commonplace slang word almost. Mm-hmm. So can you t- yep. talk about a little bit about what uh, triggered is? Right. Uh, so when we're talking in a clinical perspective, what trigger actually means is something that if you say, for instance, you've gone through a trauma, say you've gone through a car wreck that was really traumatizing to you, you might have had some physical, mental and emotional negative impacts from it. Being triggered in the future might mean that your body is kicking in a response to danger that's not happening because of what you've gone through in the past. So like a physiological response. It's a physiological response an emotional response to something that's not actually happening right there. But since you've gone through something similar, it kicks it in and it gives you that adrenaline and that fight or flight response to some things. So really, and again, I've done it. I joke about it too sometimes. But really, this is just about being a little bit more mindful of the fact that some people do go through these things. And if we throw these terms around too much, it can devalue what people have gone through and what they're experiencing and working through. I kind of kick myself because in our, our circles, like, oh, it's giving me anxiety. Right. And it's like, well, stop. You shouldn't have said that. Right. But I am overwhelmed at the moment. <laughs> well, you know, stress and anxiety are two different things. And I think a lot of people equate anxiety and stress. But if you've talked to someone or spoken with someone who actually has clinical anxiety, it's not something that is just stress. It's it's physical. That's a great point because a, a full on anxiety attack a mm-hmm. lot of times for the the first time it happens to a person they think they're having a heart it feels attack. It feels actually like, like a, a heart, heart attack. attack. Yeah. It does, um, and so, so they seek treatment into the emergency room thinking mm-hmm. that they're dying. That they're right. having mm-hmm. a heart attack. Right. And look, none of us are perfect. And I think it's an example of our society today. We're a lot more open and honest about mental health now, which is good. 
But we just have to be a little bit more mindful about using these terms that are clinical and they're real. And for some people, they are debilitating. So something that triggers you, you know, if you like spill coffee on yourself and you're like, oh, I'm trick, you're not. You're just upset and embarrassed. <laughs> are they just trying to be right. cool? Because that's the new in term. You're like, just... we, you know, we work with some college kids and they have the different language. Although I yeah. am young. I know, I know, Adam, you're thinking you're just as young as these college kids, right? Switch. I feel it. Well, right. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, just a different language. So I think they they may have good intentions right it could be using it in the right way that's right and i think a little bit of slang goes into that too and what's open and what the conversations are and again we are a lot more open and conversing a lot more about mental health it's just about being a little bit more mindful and you know saying what you mean and meaning what you say so be more mindful tip of the day all right. Thanks, Miss Sarah. You want uh, us to cover a topic? Info at thegiftedlife.org. We'd love to hear from you. In every episode of the Gifted Life podcast, we honor a hero. In this particular segment, we're going to do things a little different. We actually have a recipient and a donation volunteer, Sonia Taylor, who is going to be sharing her story about a hero named Jordan Taylor Brown. Well, Mr. Jordan Taylor Brown was my nephew. He was a basketball star. He loved sports. He loved his family. He was the joy in our life. When you when he walked in the room, he had this magnificent smile that would light up the whole room. But what he loved most was his family. He loved his family. He loved to play sports. Jordan What can I say? Jordan was, he was a great kid. It was sad that his life was taken at 21 years old because even though they took him at 21 years old and he's not here with us, he still remains that hero in our family because he was smart enough at 16 to say, I am going to help someone. And he was able to help people through his death, and he continues to help folks through his legacy. So Jordan was my sister's baby. He was the baby of my sister's three boys. And whenever you needed him to do anything, he was there. Um, Just before he passed away, Jordan would take care of the seniors in our neighborhood. He would take the seniors to dialysis to make sure that they were getting their treatment. So he was a kind of young man that wanted to give back and he's still giving back through his death. So not only is he a hero to seven other families, he remains our hero and we're gonna keep his legacy going on from here on out. So now we at the Gifted Life Podcast would like to just pause and say a sincere thank you to Jordan Taylor Brown for giving the gift of life. In our question and answer segment today, this is a good one because uh, the kids like to talk about this one too, uh, and maybe some adults. When you have a kidney transplant, do they take the old kidney out or does it stay? Adam? Well, I think the short answer is no, they do not take the old uh, kidney out. Really? Is your jaw on the floor? Yes. (laughs) Okay. Why? (laughs) Uh, uh, Typically, the diseased kidney stays in the body. I think because the procedure to take it out and take it 
off the vascular supply, the blood supply, to close that would be more of a risk than leaving the kidney in. So they actually implant the kidney into a lower part of the abdomen, the very uh, lowest portion of the abdomen, and connect it to the blood supply there. Uh, because the disease kidney is connected to blood supply at a, at a really crucial level, some really major important blood vessels, and they rather not go in and cut on those blood vessels if they don't have to. So it's more dangerous, so they place the kidney somewhere else, the new Correct. kidney. Okay. Correct. Modern medicine, y'all. So they just tie in a little bit lower. I had no idea. Yeah, That's and we insane. have some recipients who say, I have three. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One's not working, but I have three of them now. <laughs> They're like a superhero. Yeah. yeah, a badge of honor. Yeah, so usually you have two not working because both your kidneys have failed, which is right. why you need the the, the transplant. Exactly. <laughs> wow. So. All right. Good question. Maybe you have a question for us. Info at thegiftedlife.org. You can also give us a call 504-648-3477. We'd love to hear from you. And that'll do it for this episode of The Gifted Life. Our friends, Aisha and Sonia, how great were they? Mm-hmm. Talking about the Decision Project. If you haven't checked it out, please do. It's just another way um, of making life happen, and you got to love that. Adam, thanks for being here on The Gifted Life. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks for having me. It's been a great experience. Yeah, we'll have to call them back, huh, Sarah? Mm-hmm. I love it. All right, guys, thegiftedlife.org. That's where you can find all of our episodes. We ask that you help us make life happen by spreading this information and help people find us. Yeah, and listen on our website or anywhere you listen to your podcast, whether it's Apple, Google, or Spotify. And please leave us a five-star rating and subscribe because it really helps other people find us. If you're on social media, please like our Facebook page. It's the Gifted Life Podcast. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and that's at Gifted Life Pod. Please do it. We know you're out there on social media. We'd love if you start following us and helping us make life happen. Hopefully, uh, we've inspired you to sign up to be an organ tissue and eye donor. You can do that really quickly at registerme.org. And if nothing else, we hope that you go out and do something you wouldn't normally do to help us make life happen. We're a team, and we'll talk to you next time. This is a production of LOPA, or the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency. The Gifted Life is hosted by Lori Steele, Joey Boudreau, and Sarah Blakemore. Our executive producer is Kirsten Hines. Producer is Shalon Carraway. Intern is Rebecca Ranham. And we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez. Troy Perez.